HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. World Central Kitchen is serving thousands of fresh meals to Ukrainian families fleeing home, as well as people remaining in the country. This week on Let's Talk About Food, host Louisa Kasdan spoke with Henry Patterson about his upcoming relief trip. So you're going to Poland, and I think you told me you're going to be there for at least two weeks. I'm going to Poland to help feed Ukrainian refugees. With Jose Andreas's World Central Kitchen, I decided that's what I wanted to do for my 70th birthday. I leave in just a few days. We all see that what the Russians are doing is contemptible. As a food person, we all love to help. It's in our DNA. And here are people who really need our help. So if you want to help the Ukrainian refugees, either with money or even your hands and heart, find hashtag Chefs for Ukraine and World Central Kitchen. We have to do something. We can help. Remember, hashtag Chefs for Ukraine. Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit. Two events in 2022 offering a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect. Details at pahempsummit.com. You're listening to Season 2 of Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metric, Wythe Marshall, and Allie Whist. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow food, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming and urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements, examining each in turn. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us to chat today. We're really excited to talk to you and talk about Radix and um, everything that's going on in Albany. Um, so just to kind of get started, if you could tell us, um, your name about yourself, the basics, um, and just how you came to urban agriculture. (laughs) Sure. My name's Scott Kellogg. I'm currently the educational director of the Radix Ecological Sustainability Center, which is an urban environmental education nonprofit based in the South end of Albany, New York. And I've been involved in this line of work really since 2000. Started working in the field of urban sustainability education advocacy back then in Austin, Texas, where helped co-found and run an organization that was called the Rhizome Collective from about 2000 to 2009 and have been in Albany from 2009 to present. And what led me to urban agriculture in this field of work, I think, was really being involved with the ultra-globalization movement of the late 1990s, where the common catchphrase was, uh, another world is possible, which would people say quite often. And we wanted to um, know exactly what it was in that other world 
what did that other world look like? How do we get our food in that other world? How do we move around? How do we deal with issues like education and transportation and healthcare and water filtration and composting and waste management and energy production? So Rhizome was an attempt for some of us to actually try and figure that out. And we created a center for urban sustainability education and a center for community organizing, where we provided low rent space to a number of different social and activist organizations like books, uh, Bikes Cross Borders and Inside Books, which is a Books for Prisoners project, Food Not Bombs, all at the same time working in a space, it was a warehouse space that originally had a big asphalt parking lot that we converted into gardens and had created constructed wetland systems and aquaponics and rainwater collection systems and turbines and created a really interesting cross-pollination of people working for both social and ecological justice and wanted to show how those two things are necessarily interconnected with one another. As it was often presented as a false choice back then that you kind of had to choose between one or working for one or the other, which still may be the case in many places. However, we wanted to show how explicitly those two things are connected with one another and get people working for each in the same space and communicating and sharing ideas with one another. So I think that's what led me to doing this kind of work. Wow, it's really fascinating. And uh, I want to hear a little more about the details of Radix, but maybe you can tell us more about Radix while also kind of expounding on this idea of social and ecological justice as things that aren't separate, because I think there still is uh, a notion that there are separate issues at stake here. And at least from my encounters with the work that you do, I think you really make it clear how intertwined these issues actually are. <laughs> yeah. So Radix is a demonstration site of sustainable tools and technologies that's designed to teach urban residents with a special focus on, focus on youth how to have greater local access and control over essential resources such as food and water, waste management, energy production, with an emphasis on building systems that are simple and affordable with the goal of coming up with a model that's going to be transferable or replicable to cities throughout the country and the world. Now, as we know, more than 50% of the world's population is currently living in urban environments. So if we're going to have serious conversations about making a transition into a society that is more equitable, just, and regenerative, it's really important that we look at our cities and think about how they can be redesigned and how they can be repurposed so that they are capable of providing their residents with more of their material needs in terms of food and water and waste management, energy production, at the same time, promoter, promoting greater social justice and equity, which is really the tricky part. Because, you know, what we've seen happen with the sustainability movement since its inception in the 1970s, I think, is a slow marginalization of the, the social pillar of sustainability. When we look at it, it's a real original definition. It's about being mindful of the economic, social, and environmental dimensions of life. I mean, I think that's, you know, that, that analysis is limited, and there's things that we could critique about that, but, but being what it is, questions of equity and fairness and race and class have, have been marginalized. They're inconvenient. They would cause, require people to do too much of a fundamental restructuring of our economic system and the way that resources are distributed. So we've seen sort of this marginalization of the social pillar of sustainability with a greater emphasis put upon economic and enviro-technical, gray infrastructural, environmental issues. So we want to be really explicit about recentering that, that social pillar and being really clear about how questions of equity and fairness pertain to things like soil and water and air and non-human life in the city. And I think that's really fits within a broader environmental justice framework, which, you know, environmental justice is a movement, a worldview, a, a political outlook that has done a great job of identifying 
patterns of inequitable distribution of environmental risks and harms among low income and communities of color. And there are other ideas that we have taken from that, really extending the idea of, quote, the environment to include social, human, and, and economic processes as well. So really, you know, combining that with other movements for just transition, such as food justice and climate justice, has created the central framework from, from which we do our work at Radix. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'm really interested in this. I mean, I've heard you say before that low income communities often bear the burden of environmental harm and this expansion of the notion of environment to include social, cultural, economic systems. Um, and being based in Albany, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little about the specific context of Albany, um, you know, the capital of New York State, but also just how these issues play out in in the community that Radix is in. Sure. So we're based in the south end of Albany, which is low-income, predominantly African-American neighborhood within the city of Albany, which is a city of about 100,000 people. It is the, the capital of New York, so there is a lot of state workers and policy workers who, who work there, not very many of them who actually live in the city itself, but who may commute in in the daytime. And it's a, a, a city marked and defined and, and, and honestly carved up by a number of poorly thought out urban renewal schemes that were enacted in the mid 20th century, chiefly among them being the construction of the Empire Plaza, which is a massive complex that houses state government offices that was built in the 1960s that resulted in the displacement of thousands of people. One of the highest per capita displacements of an urban population as a consequence of an urban renewal program in the country. Uh, that literally bisected the city and makes it physically difficult for, to walk from one half to the other. There's only a few places through which you can even cross through the plaza. That, in addition to the construction of Interstate 787, which is uh, an interstate highway that runs parallel to the Hudson River, which has done a couple things, cut off everybody's access to the river, making it physically difficult to actually get to the banks of it, despite the fact that all these river cities ostensibly were only created because of their relationship to the river. And everyone now recognizes that that was a mistake and that a waterfront is actually an asset for a city. Uh, it's, it's difficult to undo at this point. Uh, that also had the effect of um, facilitating suburban commuting and the disinvestment of the urban core. This went hand in hand with racist policies such as redlining to create massive disinvestment in particular neighborhoods, including the south end of Albany. And this neighborhood is still dealing with the consequences of these racist policies in, in terms of the de deterioration of the housing stock, environmental contamination, proximity of homes to, for instance, the Port of Albany sources of pollution, to interstates, exposure to auto traffic, lack of access to green space, a, a dearth of street trees, the list goes on and on, in addition to seriously decreased opportunities for youth growing up in the neighborhood. So these are some of the social and economic conditions that we were working within in, in the south end of Albany. Yeah, wow, what a context to bring us sort of to this plot of land <laughs> that you have, that you're doing such a diverse range of projects on. I mean, you have greenhouses, uh, you have some perennial projects. I mean, there's aquaponic experiments. Um, you have a vehicle that you custom built to pick up compost for local residents. Maybe you can just walk us through some of the like really amazing scope of what's happening at the center. <laughs> sure. So we've got a one acre property. We start off with the first half acre and about 2009, a couple years later, we donated the adjacent half-acre parcel. So the two are contiguous. So we've got a one-acre parcel in the middle of the city, which is, um, you know, most people will not think of a one-acre as, as being a huge plot of land, but for a city, it's pretty big. It feels big. And when we first got there, most of it was paved, covered in asphalt and a bunch of abandoned cars and trash. And so we spent a good number of years really just uh, removing debris and tearing up asphalt and have since begun the work of building up the health of the soils. 
which is uh, the first step towards in increasing capacity to grow food and to build food security and build sovereignty and food justice within a community. And have slowly added in sustainable systems to Radix and integrated with them with one another. These include, as you mentioned, a solar greenhouse, what we sometimes refer to as a bio shelter, which is a 20 foot by 60 foot greenhouse that allows us to maintain living systems throughout the year. This is great as an educational center because kids can come there in the middle of the winter. And if the sun is shining, it'll be 75, 80 degrees in there, even if it's zero degrees outdoors. And there's living plants and flowing water and aquaponic systems, like you mentioned, on the inside, which um, create a great opportunity to about, learn about living systems, particularly during the winter months. And that's one thing about life in a temperate climate is that our school year is more or less the inverse of the growing season. So there's limited opportunities during the school year to, to be able to learn about gardens and plants and living systems. So it's great to be able to ki bring kids there and let them use all of their senses in learning. We believe in, in what's called multiple intelligence theory that, you know, some people listen, learn well by listening, watching, but people also learn by touching and by tasting and by smelling and by moving around. And we like to engage all of those senses when we bring students into the space. We also have what we call micro livestock, which is maybe just a fancy word for chickens and ducks who, uh, you know, play a huge role in um, eating food waste and converting those back into eggs that we then distribute through our farm share operation. We have a community composting initiative, which is now a program that's actually being supported by the city of Albany, uh, outdoor ponds, uh, rainwater collection systems, honeybees. Uh, we have electrically assisted cargo bicycles and tricycles. Like yeah, I mentioned, go around and do curbside comp food scraps collection, bring it down to Radix. We have whole agroforestry demonstration system, perennial food forward system, where we are growing a variety of fruit and nut trees and have uh, recently begun a South End Biocultural Diversity Forest Program where we're starting to plant trees in public spaces in the sidewalks. So there's um, quite a number of systems that we have there. And we bring in kids and school groups, run an after-school high school youth employment program, and also just generally try and be open for adults passing through the neighborhood and allow people to come in and develop a sense of ecological literacy, develop a sense of familiarity and knowledge with those systems that, that many times as a consequence of living in cities, you tend to be disconnected from. Even though we are in a small city like Albany, we're surrounded by farms and fields and forests, but if you don't have a car, those things aren't going to be accessible to you, nor are they necessarily going to be culturally welcoming spaces either, as they tend to be white and Republican dominated. So... Yeah, we believe there's a value to integrating ecological space, green space, agricultural space into high density urban mosaics. Yeah, that's really fascinating um, in terms of the cultural relevancy, which I think gets lost a lot of times when we sort of talk about food access. We're really just focused on kind of an object oriented. How do we and of course, it's urgent. How do we get food into cities uh, and fresh food? But I think there is the cultural relevancy is really an important aspect of it. Um, and I wanted to go back to the perennial uh, tree project. Um, I was a little curious about some of the fruit trees you're planting, I believe, that are sort of looking forward to a possibly warmer climate and just some of the recent trees you've been planting and kind of what uh, what the strategy is there. Sure. So we've been planting fruit and nut trees on the Radix site for a number of years. And we've recently expanded that through funding that we've received through New York State and through uh, community development block grants to start a program called the South End Biocultural Diversity Forest. And this has um, been designed and thought of with, with the knowledge that formerly redlined neighborhoods like the South End of Albany have a lack of tree cover. This has been pretty well documented through the use of uh, satellite mapping technology to show that these um, neighborhoods have considerably less tree cover, which can result in a significantly higher temperatures, particularly in the summer months, as much as, as 10 degrees Fahrenheit from one neighborhood to the next, depending on the percentage of tree cover. Trees produce shade and they do a really good job of blocking sunlight so it 
is not that the heat from the sunlight is not absorbed by the preponderance of impervious cover that exists in cities and in the form of concrete sidewalks and asphalt parking lots and, and black rubber rooftops. So trees produce shade. They also filter air. They do a great job of purifying air. They're one of the most cost-effective options for blocking airborne air, uh, particulate emissions that, that come from highways, which, again, we have uh, Interstate 77 going through the south end of Albany, and in addition, State Highway 32, which goes right by the Ezra Prentice public housing units and contributes to asthma rates approaching 30 and 40 percent of the residents there. So another reason to plant trees. Carbon sequestration, also doing something to actively try and reverse climate change. And these are all these are all reasons, you know, they're pretty well known to support planting trees, but particularly in lower income neighborhoods where there this inequitable access to uh, street trees does exist already. A couple other dimensions that we're bringing to other considerations to tree planting is genetic diversity. The fact that a lot of municipalities have mostly planted ornamental and clonal varieties of trees just because they're more aesthetically pleasing, uh, you know, to conventional aesthetic senses, such as the city of Worcester, Massachusetts. So something like 50% of the trees they planted are a clone of red maple, all planted the same year, keep in mind. So A, they're all going to die at the same time, but any disease that comes in there figures out how to kill one of them is just going to wipe through the population because there is no genetic variation. They're all clones of one another within a population. So this is a challenge because a lot of the nurseries that sell trees that are big enough to plant in streets, a lot of times the municipalities want like big trees, trees that are about one inch in diameter. There's not very many of them. Uh, the selection is limited. But we try and seek ones out that are seedlings that have been grown from seed that are not have not been produced via clonal reproduction so that there is greater genetic variation in the in the urban forest, which is just ultimately going to make it more resilient, especially as we are facing an onslaught of tree diseases in the face of climate change. Emerald ash borer. Well, that's actually wiping out all the ash trees, but Asian longhorn beetle, which, of course, is affecting maple trees, the woolly delgid, the list goes on and on. Trees are facing a lot of threats. So we need to be thinking about climate resilience in the design of our urban forest and be thinking about possibly varieties and species of trees that might currently be on the edge of their historical range. But in a warming climate, particularly in urban climate, which is already warmer to begin with on account of the urban heat island, which I mentioned can make cities already 10 degrees hotter than surrounding rural areas because of the preponderance of concrete and asphalt. Trees that will be able to survive in a warmer environment. So an example of that, some uh, trees that we are planting in, in Albany include pawpaws, persimmons, pecans, things that were currently on the northern extent of their range, but in a warming climate, maybe become better adapted than ones that, you know, that might be currently on the, the, uh, the, the southern extension of the range. So also uh, food is a consideration, this idea of urban agroforestry, which is frequently not considered by municipalities when they think about trees and street tree planting. They usually think of fruit as, uh, as being a bad thing. Because it drops, it makes a mess, it might attract bees, creates aesthetic issues. And I say, okay, well, we have a we have a food access issue. This is a food desert community. This is a food apartheid neighborhood where we have an abundance of corner stores and liquor stores, but not much in the way of fresh, affordable, and culturally appropriate food. So that's something also to be taking into consideration. So looking at ideally species that are native genetically unique and have some kind of fruit or nut bearing capability uh, are a criteria for trees. Yeah, it adds another dimension to the the definition of urban farming and really provides another level of access that's also like reduces the um the need for gatekeepers, the need for special skills, like having fruit and nut trees uh, provides an access that someone without the education around farming can really actually sort of engage with that without the prior knowledge. 
Yeah. And if I, I have a question on education, which is, you know, do, does growing these kinds of trees um, help you have more sophisticated conversations with visitors, with youth um, on the farm about things like climate disruption and, you know, the fact that the state is going to change, even though we're in New York and we're actually in a, in a climate that's more stable um, and, and will probably still get rain and et cetera. Um, you know, that, that those are real issues that, that especially younger people are going to see, people younger than us are going to see more and more of. Um, and I, I just wonder how that, how that conversation, which is, you know, I can imagine the conversation of practical skilling around like horticulture is one thing, and maybe people are kind of generally interested in that. But then a conversation around like a kind of bleak future and the politics of that is a whole different, you know, um, a bag of, of tree fruit, uh, to use a metaphor. So I'm just curious how, how your experiences have been as an educator with that more philosophical dimension, if you have, you know, thoughts on that. Yeah, definitely. And and that's a big component of ecological literacy and a big debate within environmental education circles, right, is really when to talk about those types of complex, is, complex issues. The, in, within environmental education pedagogy, there's this, this notion of ecophobia that, um, you know, we want to be sort of careful about talking about environmental catastrophism. Um, to children who are too young, right? And a real emphasis on building what we call love before knowledge, letting young children really just be able to go to a forest or go to a farm and love trees and love animals and insects and just develop that sense of familiarity and love because ultimately they're going to be far more motivated as environmental advocates to work in the defense of something that they love rather than something that they just feel anxious about and bad about. Right. So but, you know, by the time we do get to high school, you know, and even upper middle school, we can start having these more sophisticated conversations about complex issues like climate change, for instance. But we also want to bring in a climate justice lens and think about the fact that it is low income communities of color globally who are going to suffer first and the worst as a result of the consequences of climate change, but have also proportionately contributed the least towards making it happen in the first place, right? So keeping that in mind and, and working in low-income communities, realizing that the burden shouldn't necessarily be upon these youth who are struggling in a lot of their home circumstances, home life circumstances, to be solving it, right? But to have a lot of the actions be based around things that can be improving their own prospects, ways that they can be securing food for themselves, for their communities, for their families, and at the same time be working to slow the advance of climate change. So this idea of biocultural diversity, which I mentioned in the name of our program, the South End Biocultural Diversity Forest, is one way to, to sort of frame that, this of, of how do we sort of make a connection between social justice and biodiversity conservation. Because, you know, historically biodiversity conservation has kind of been this very white field uh, more affluent people, more concerned about, you know, with just the protection of forests rather than of, of humans and of human well-being. Biodiverse, biocultural diversity is a way to sort of link the two together. And, and trees are a great way to do that. We do that a lot with honeybees and with insects, honestly, um, to, to show folks and particularly youth, urban youth, how what's good for them is also good for birds and insects and bees. And what's good for birds and bees and insects and trees is also good for them. Uh, in the case of the bees, it's really clear connections, right? That 90% of the food crops that we rely upon as a global society depend upon some insect pollinator to produce the parts that we eat. And at least within industrial agriculture, that's the honeybee. I mean, we have a parallel strategy of also trying to cultivate native pollinating insects. But the relationship is quite clear that we need to protect the pollinating insects in order to have food. So it's really trying to, to to teach what I call a sort of an ethic of reciprocity, right? That's um, somewhere in between what I call like don't touch environmentalism, which is like, um, okay, we're going to walk through woods, but we're not going to touch anything. And we're just kind of feel anxious and bad about all the impacts that we have on the earth. And then the dominant paradigm, which is just laid all to waste and who cares, right? An ethic of reciprocity is about understanding interconnectedness, right? And that if you take too much, it's ultimately going to be impacting you. So that's what we try and move to the to to, to the front of our eco justice pedagogy.
Support for this episode comes from Team Pennsylvania, hosting the Pennsylvania Hemp Summit, with two events in 2022 that offer a place for farmers, professionals, investors, and policymakers to learn and connect, while providing an occasion to network and grow the businesses that comprise the region's hemp industry. The Pennsylvania Hemp Summit aims to increase the Commonwealth's shared knowledge and resources in order to inspire innovative investments and to form transformative partnerships in the hemp industry. Join us for our upcoming trade show, reception, and investor pitch competition in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on April 26th to 27th, and again on November 8th and 9th for educational sessions, a trade show, and reception. Register to attend or get involved by exhibiting or sponsoring. Details at pahempsummit.com. Are you a business owner? This spring, amplify your business and support HRN's mission by becoming a business member. HRN is dedicated to spotlighting small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. With a $500 business membership, HRN can shine a light on your work and you can help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You will also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. When it comes to trees, though, you know, there's a balance between vegetable-based annual agriculture and then perennial tree crops. Um, we do both, really. Um, garden vegetables are a lot of work. People love to eat them. They taste really good. They're very productive. But it's a lot of work, particularly during the summer months, to keep garden spaces weeded. So, you know, in a, in a city like Albany, where we have both an abundance of abandoned housing, vacant buildings, but also vacant lots, we're sort of thinking of that as, as a good use for a lot of vacant lot properties to actually turn them into nut orchards, which um, are providing numerous ecosystem services, but also producing food and relatively low maintenance. Really, it's a high initial investment of energy to get trees established, but once you do, they're going to produce for you year after year with minimal uh, energy inputs on your part. That can mostly be done in the spring, in the fall, and the winter versus weeding in the summer, which is difficult when it's hot. Yeah, what a great example of the reciprocity idea, putting in that work ahead of time <laughs> for something that can really kind of sustain itself in the long run. Just a remark, I think that's such a great answer about um, addressing the need to teach a kind of uh, love. So not just we talk sometimes about observation. I know Melissa's big on that, just sort of being more aware of the living environment within the urban environment. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think about it from urban studies perspective of like planetary urbanization theory, like it even, you know, kind of anywhere you go now, I feel like there's a lot of built structures, there's a lot of people, and it is easy to sort of um, to tune out a lot of the the, the nature, the, the life, uh, bees, even, you know, down to weeds, and I think it's it's interesting to move beyond sort of observation um, to use horticultural skills and like knowledge about what's edible um, to teach a kind of love and, and respect. Um, and yeah, do it through that reciprocity paradigm. I think that's that's probably a really good approach, especially imagine with kids um, who are probably not great at, you know, complete hands off. But also hopefully we can stop them before they become just extractivist monsters who like don't, you know, don't believe that there's a cost to anything. So, you know, props for that. Um, but yeah, Ali, I know you, you have a, a bunch of great questions. So, yeah. And it makes me think of just like the the way in which we sort of approach um, the biocultural kind of uh, diversity also leads me to think of um, embracing diversity across the ecosystem as well and across like what we deem as good versus bad. Um, you know, there's such a wider awareness of what actually lives in our urban ecosystem. I mean, I think a lot of people still don't notice, like you're saying, uh, the insects that actually exist in our urban ecosystem, certainly the microbes. A lot of people don't notice the trees at all. Um, and then furthermore, if they do, there's still the categorization of harmful, beneficial, or even just in terms of aesthetically pleasing or not. And, you know, you've done so much in terms of remediation, like uh, digging up asphalt to try to bring back the soil quality. But I'm kind of curious of your approach broadly to the kind of tension between bioremediation, but then also sort of accepting and adapting 
to certain levels of ecological degradation and not abandoning sites that are um, that do have a level of toxicity. And like, how do we work within the toxicity that we're kind of stuck with in a lot of urban environments? Yeah. So, right, we we definitely like to frame cities as ecosystems, which I think is an idea that the idea of urban ecology is becoming more broadly accepted. I mean, I think that's that's fairly recent in the past decade. I mean, prior to that, if you asked most people to to identify an ecosystem, most of them would not think of the city as a, as a type of ecosystem. But, you know, we define an ecosystem as being a community of organisms interacting with the living and non-living aspects of their environment. And by that definition, cities most certainly are ecosystems. They are not, however, necessarily healthy or high-functioning ecosystems. But once we identify them as such, we can ask the question of how they can be improved. How can they be made healthier, uh, more equitable, more just, more resilient, more regenerative? So that is also a good entry point for education and working with youth, right, who in conventional environmental education are taught that the environment, right, is something out there. And I mean, like out there, like the Catskills, the Adirondacks, right, something far away, not right around you. And if you want to study pure nature, pure environment, you have to go somewhere else. You have to leave the city. And and there's certainly value to that, right? I mean, somebody could certainly go out to the woods and have a very transformative experience, but that might inadvertently result in them internalizing a lot of negative attitudes towards the places that they actually live. And what we want to do is center urban ecosystems and say, well, they do have value. They are interesting as, as topics of study and that there, there is the work that we can do to heal them. They are anthropogenic ecosystems, human created. They're heavily human influenced, but they are not exclusively homo sapien spaces. Cities are the co-evolutionary product of human and non-human processes. That's really well documented. Uh, I mean, William Cronin's Nature's Metropolis, I mean, the huge textbook all about how Chicago was created by these metabolic flows of resources into the middle of the city. I mean, there's tons of literature to, to document how the, how this works. But using that as an entry point, right? And then asking the question of, well, how can we improve uh, urban environments? How can we improve the health of those ecosystems? And, and can we value a lot of the, what we often label rural, disturbant tolerant, sometimes even invasive species that that are in cities that might be regarded by many people as being weedy or trashy. Um, cities face a lot of ecological challenges, particularly when it comes to soil, right? Urban soils tend to be non-existent or degraded or contaminated. Uh, non-existent meaning they've been paved over, they've been sealed by asphalt, by concrete. Uh, degraded, they've had trucks driving across them, seriously compressed, uh, starved of oxygen, starved of organic matter, and contaminated as a consequence of industry being located inside of cities over the past 150 years. Lead paint, lead gasoline, smelters from a variety of sources. The list goes on and on. The good news is it's, it's possible to regenerate the health of soils. And this, the means to do that is right at our fingertips in the form of the huge amounts of organic matter that's getting thrown away in the landfill every day in the form of food scraps and brown leaves and wood chips and grass clippings and all this one's living matter. And what we need to be doing is intercepting all that organic matter and composting it aerobically on the surface of the planet and using the completed soil, the finished compost, to build soil where it doesn't exist, to regenerate its health where it's been degraded, or in the case where it's been contaminated, it's quite useful too. In the case of lead, lead is lipophilic. It likes to bind with fatty materials, which is why it's such a, a potent neurotoxin and danger for, for children. But lead can get bound up within the molecular structure of compost so that its biological availability is reduced. And if it were to be accidentally ingested, it would just pass through your body rather than stick to receptor sites in your brain. So, so many reasons to compost, right, beyond just trying to prevent methane from escaping and, and reducing climate change, regenerating the health of soils and providing jobs for people. And to think about the connection between environmental justice and composting. I, I wrote a whole chapter in the book called uh, Compost Justice, 
right, that makes the argument that the benefits of compost and composting are enormous. And therefore, it's really important to make sure that composting remains a process that is decentralized and horizontally distributed and controlled by environmental justice communities. And to be careful not to let the so-called titans of trash come in and dominate those markets and be processing it at mega scale facilities outside of the city limits. So, um, yeah, um, the right to compost is, is an interesting question. What, what is compost justice? So that, that's one way to approach it. And, and when it comes to remediation, particularly bioremediation, I think you, compost remediation as a form of bioremediation is one of the most promising models that there is also for, for the potential of, of, of hitching it to an economic engine, right? That you can be creating jobs for people, particularly in low-income neighborhoods, and be using the byproducts to regenerate the health of, of, of soils and using the food grown there to improve food sovereignty within food apartheid communities. Yeah, it's really amazing that compost can actually help mitigate lead contamination in a way. I had no idea. <laughs> but that is, I mean, and also, again, if we do have a right to compost and a, and a right to, I mean, you know, materials processing maybe is a better way to phrase what we currently call trash and recycling. <laughs> but if we as citizens actually had a right to better self-determination as to how these materials go back into the earth, because they're still going back in in some way, um, yeah, then is there an entire infrastructure that actually creates jobs and contributes to the health of the city? Um, it's a really kind of profound question. Yeah. And and looking at all this through a lens of, um, of urban metabolism, which is, uh, you know, an idea that's used by a lot of urban planners to to really be looking at the the flow path of materials into city, water, energy, food, building materials, and then what gets spit out on the other end in the form of toxicity and waste. And what we have very much right now is a linear system where we have flow paths coming across the whole planet, coming into cities and then spewing toxicity and emissions out in, in communities in the near vicinity of the cities. And what we really want to try and do is close that loop a bit to make more of a closed metabolic cycle, cyclical system where more food is grown within city limits, where we're processing our waste internally, where we're capturing rainwater, where we're trying to produce electricity. And, and very importantly, the waste end of it, right? We're putting that back into the soils and regenerating their health. And along with that comes a question of, of the right to the metabolism and questions of, you know, cities for people, not for profit. What are cities for? What Are they beyond just uh, growth machines, neoliberal investment schemes, or can they actually be places where people live their lives in that land and property can be de decommodified. So this is all part of our questions that we ask as well. I was just really curious about what, because I, I actually have never heard this before, um, about lead and how if you use compost, how it could actually make it less dangerous for folks who work around lead. I know, like I've, I've heard about how it, you know, can dilute it and all these other things. But what you were saying is that compost can actually make lead um, help people not absorb it as as much. Can you explain that just real quick? A couple of things going on. Reasons, ways that adding compost to contaminated soil can improve the condition. One, it's creating a physical, say you have soils with moderate lead levels contaminations, like say let's 400 parts per million, which is generally considered the uh, the danger mark. Um, if you were to spread compost on top of that, A, it's creating a physical barrier that's separating people above from contaminated soil below. Particularly, we're mostly concerned about children here, babies, children who crawl around in their hands and knees and are sticking their hands in the dirt in their mouths all the time, right? So preventing them from actually coming into contact with lead contaminated soil. Another thing it's doing is keeping lead contaminated soil wet. And, and compost will do this, but wood chips will do this also. You know, some kind of barrier that's going to help retain moisture down there. Mulch in general does this. I mean, if you ever mulch a tree, you know, even during the driest part of the summer, if I stick my hand down six inches, I'm going to feel moisture. It does an amazing job of retaining moisture. That's going to prevent lead contaminated soil from drying out. Because when it dries out, 
it gets kicked up by the winds. And then the aerial deposition can land on surfaces, surfaces of vegetables that then might get eaten or inside of homes, in roadways, right? A lot of this is just street dust that gets tracked into the house with people's shoes. So, you know, some basic common sense things like just taking your shoes off right before you go indoors, really important, particularly if you have babies in the home, mostly babies and children that we're worried about, right? So the physical barrier, preventing lead from becoming dust-borne, and then, yeah, like we mentioned, like reducing its biological availability. That lead gets essentially locked up within the structure of compost. And provided it remains moist and doesn't dry out and become degraded, it can be more or less immobilized there. The other thing that compost does that's very useful is it neutralizes soil pH. Lead is only soluble under acidic conditions. It's what's called a cationic metal. So if you can keep soil at a neutral pH, it's going to prevent lead from becoming mobilized where it then might actually get uptaken by plants. Plant uptake generally isn't that great, the, the, the research seems to be finding, but it can still happen. But neutralizing pH, soil pH, can really minimize that, which is all something that we should be doing anyway. And also another good reason to be planting fruit and nut trees in soil with moderate level contamination Data seems to be showing that uptake into the edible components of fruit and nut trees is relatively minimal compared to uptake in, for instance, um, root crops, carrots and potatoes that are actually grown in the soil that might actually have soil on them, right? So we're seeing the highest lead levels in like root crops and then in like leafy greens and then in like fruit and crops like tomatoes and then even less in tree crops. Now, you know, do we need more data? to say for sure that this is the case, but that generally seems to be what the evidence is showing. So yeah, another reason to add compost. That's great. Um, thank you for, for explaining that more. When you were talking about converting parking lots, especially to um, uh, kind of like orchards or nut tree farms, can you speak about culturally relative nuts? Um, like if, if you are planting these certain nut trees, what are, what are some, you know, culturally relative, um, nuts to be grown within urban areas? Of course, it depends on the community and who's going to be accessing those foods. But I've been curious about it in general because I want to plant, I want to start planting nut trees, but I'm thinking about like walnuts, like walnuts are fine, but I don't know if I'm that interested in walnuts. You know what I'm saying? So, so just like that type of. Um, if you could, if you've thought about that, like, like what kind of, um, nut trees and that type of thing. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and you said it right there. It depends on the cultural makeup of where you are, which is going to vary considerably from city to city. For instance, in Albany, we, we have a high population of, um, of people from Burma who've immigrated in Albany and I've observed them on multiple occasions, uh, harvesting, uh, Chinese chestnuts which um, grow quite well in Albany. So we've been planting a, a number of chestnut trees, uh, pure Chinese chestnuts, but also hybrid chestnuts, which uh, have a genetic mix of um, Chinese, Japanese, American, European. There are many species of chestnuts, and they all hybridize with each other quite well. And that's one of the things that people looking to sort of bring back the American chestnut, which if you know that history used to be one of the dominant tree types here in, uh, in North America, Eastern North America before a blight was introduced in the 1930s. So one thing that's being done is sort of mixing in the genes of American chestnut and sort of then trying to backwards breed something that is more blight resistant. So I've seen a lot of people harvesting chestnuts Walnuts, like you mentioned, are another variety, both Carpathian and black walnuts. Um, a lot of traditions in this country of people eating black walnuts, a native nut tree. Uh, pecans, like I mentioned, particularly people from southern states. Pecans are really commonly eaten there. And there is what we call the ultra-northern pecan, which um, pecans will go as far north up into like Illinois, um, a lot further north than people realize. And um, yeah, with uh, climate change taking place, I would not be surprised in a decade or two, we're able to produce pecans, thin-shelled pecans. Um, 
hickories. Uh, there's something called even the, the hecan, which is a cross between pecans and hickories. Um, hazelnuts uh, are really good. At, uh, a very short nut tree. I mean, Max is at maybe like 10 or 12 feet high. There's a lot of other nut trees that grow really huge. And of course, there's oaks, right? Which a lot of people don't think about eating acorns. But that was actually a staple of many indigenous Americans' diet was the acorn. A lot of people might now might think of that as kind of survival food. But um, in, I, I suppose part of my brain thinks about, well, potential times of emergency or crisis. Um, if there was no other food available, yeah, people might be motivated to go to the trouble of actually leaching the tannins out of, out of acorns and eat them. And they're quite good. But if they don't, they provide food for a number of other species, squirrels, turkeys, deer, while the oak tree itself provides food to over 500 species of moths and butterflies. I mean, they have, oak trees have one of the, the highest potential to support native biodiversity. And keep in mind, it's birds who then eat the, the caterpillars of all those, those moths and butterflies. So, um, yeah, I, I, I like them all. I am, and, and what the exact consortium and makeup is going to be, you know, we'll see. We'll figure it out. Yeah, it's fascinating to kind of hear how this patchwork will evolve and change and continually adapt as the climate gets warmer, but as the health of certain aspects of the ecosystem hopefully improves, but also just works with what we have. <laughs> Going back to this idea of root oil species, right, that a lot of times the plants that are considered weedy or invasive or trashy in urban environments are these disturbance tolerant plants are the ones that are capable of surviving in these degraded environments, in these compacted soils, in these heavily alkaline soils, in these highly salinated soils, in these soils that are very low in organic matter. All these conditions that most plants would not be able to thrive in, we do see a lot of disturbance tolerant and often what are considered invasive plants. But it's important to keep in mind, those plants are performing ecosystem services. They are one of the few things that are able to survive there. They're preventing more erosion. They are building soil. They're still growing. They're taking carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in the ground, building organic matter. They're creating habitat for insects. They're creating food for insects, habitat for birds. Eventually, over time, through successionary processes, as soil health is improved, they will likely be replaced by other less rural species. So I just, you know, I ask people to um, to not immediately dismiss a lot of those species out of hand and, and to consider a lot of times our efforts to control invasive species, I believe, do more harm than good. And the, the discussion over native versus non-natives is more complex than a simple native, non-native, uh, native, non-native binary. Absolutely. There's more things to consider there. Yeah. And a lot of them, I mean, even from a uh, human center, we can go back to an anthro, you know, perspective. A lot of them are incredibly medicinal or delicious. I mean, dandelion greens. Now you can buy at a grocery store for like $7. And I'm like, really? We, that's, Okay. <laughs> we can forage this, you know, in an urban environment and plantain is like quite medicinal and can help even in like a topical application. Um, there's a sumac. There's a lot that we could be doing with them. In addition to, like you said, encouraging plants that are, that are able to help regenerate soil and at least sequester some carbon. And no, they're not aesthetically appealing, but that's not the only goal. And that's all subjective anyway. Yeah, exactly. A lot of terms... Right. Determined by these very modernist aesthetic sensibilities that have gone, kind of gotten us into the mess that we're currently in. So, yeah. Uh, well, Wythel, if there's anything else you want to ask, I want to make sure to give you the chance. <laughs> no, thanks. I mean, it's such a great conversation. As usual, we could talk all night. I think we should wrap it up in the interest of, you know, generally how long our episodes are. Um, but Scott, we really appreciate your time. And so as, you know, one, one final question, I guess, is just, um, which I, you know, we, we talked a bit about climate already, so, you know, kind of tech that box. But I wanted to ask if you had any advice for our listeners, um, 
particularly in New York's capital area, but but including listeners far beyond, um, as to you know ways they could uh, either participate with what you're doing or um, you know do something similar in their area. And and really, I guess sort of a linked but different high level question. You know what what would you like to see happen um, in in a larger sense? You know, in terms of the sort of politics of agriculture and urban planning. Um, you know, in, in the next 10, 20 years, you know, what, what are some things you're hopeful about? What are some things that you'd encourage people to learn more about? Um, and, you know, I think we've probably covered some of the things that are, we're all worried about like climate disruption, but yeah, just, um, you know, the, the, however you want to take that. Sure. No, I definitely encourage anybody to come visit us, check out our website, radiccenter.org. We do regular open houses and events. I'd love to have visitors come and, and see the work that we do. Come check out our youth programs with both elementary schools. I mean, we're doing garden-based learning and educational programs, and we have a contract with the City of Albany School District to do this with kids. And our high school summer youth employment program, we do uh, pandemic resilience and climate justice program over the summer, which is part of an AmeriCorps program with local high school youth. Um, so, yeah, I'd love for people to come uh, check out our work and and for for people to see it as a replicable model, right? That Ideally, I want them to come there and think about the systems that we have there and figure out how they can scale them up or down accordingly in a decentralized and horizontally distributed way so that they're appropriate to the places where they actually live. But like at least going forward and looking at cities, again, thinking about cities for people, not for profit, right? How can we establish really land trust models, I think, that are going to be take, especially if we have an opportunity, second tier post-industrial cities, shrinking or plateau cities like Albany, where property rates are real estate values are not through the roof, right? That we have an opportunity to buy housing and buy vacant land and remove it from market speculation, ensure that it remains as affordable housing indefinitely or as land set aside for agricultural use or green space use in perpetuity to resist onslaughts of, um, of, 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 neoliberal development that may be coming in the future. We don't know, right? But in the short term, mistakes that should be not be made in any city. For me, like one of the biggest perks of living in a city is that you can live a relatively auto-independent life. And one of the worst things that we could be doing, if not one of the worst things we could be being in a city right now is building more parking lots anywhere or creating more auto infrastructure that in any way incentivizes the use of cars. Um, from an ecological, ecosystems services perspective, parking lots provide nothing, zero ecosystem services. They provide disservices because they get so hot. They, they're the ecological analog, they're, they're the equivalent of a lava field, basically. Lava fields would actually be better because they actually do have some nutrient value, right? But... There's nothing growing on them. They're hot. They're impervious. Water races right off them and triggers combined sewage overflow events. That's another thing we never got into is talking about the river, right? But um, yeah, rip up parking lots and turn them into food forests. That would be uh, my advice in a nutshell right at the time. And involve local communities to have their leadership and guidance and participation and be building equity and justice all at once. We're so grateful for your insight and thoughts and to learn more about Radix. And also um, for our listeners, definitely check out Scott's book, Urban Ecosystem Justice Strategies for Equitable Sustainability and Ecological Literacy in the City. It's awesome. <laughs> yes. Please email me at sk at radiccenter.org if you're interested in receiving a digital review copy. Yeah. And um, I think that's that's about all the time we have. So we'll just say thank you again for your time. And um, Radix, R-A-D-I-X, you can find them also on Instagram and Facebook. And we're going to go up there when it's safe COVID-wise. We're going to do a field trip, Scott, and help out and uh, learn. Awesome. Look forward to it. Thanks to our brilliant guests. Fields theme music is by Sam Tyndall. Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. 
Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio and at fields podcast. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.